Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Arsenal Women Askcast on askblog.com. Another two-parter coming at you today. In the second half of the episode, I will be speaking to Carrie Dunn, author and journalist, about her new book, Quite Unsuitable for Females, The History of Women's Football. and had a really, really interesting chat with Carrie, not just about the book itself and what's in it, but the process of putting it together, the lack of documentation um, in in the history of women's football, particularly when you go back and the era um, when when the game was banned in the UK. Really, really interesting half an hour chat with Carrie. That's coming up in the second half. However, in the first half of the episode, most of you will know by now that Arsenal have committed to playing at least six Arsenal women home games at Emirates Stadium next season. Contingent, of course, on Arsenal winning their Champions League qualifier, getting into the Champions League group stages and all three of those home group stage home games will be at Emirates Stadium. So I thought, who better to talk to about this than the Emirates Stadium venue director, Tom McCann. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. No worries, Tim. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Tom, first of all, your job title, I believe, is Emirates Stadium Venue Director, which which sounds kind of cool, to be honest. Um, what exactly does that entail? Yeah, sure. So I look after the uh, venue department, Tim, and basically um, our team looks after, uh, we're responsible for all of, all of the sales and all of the service um, for all our f- supporters for all matches. So um, effectively, we look after the sales of all of our season tickets, um, general admission season tickets, premium season tickets, uh, match-by-match ticket sales, home and away. Um, we look after the stadium access, um, so turnstile control. Um, and then we look after all of the servicing. So uh, every contact that comes through the fan service team, um, through, through email, through phone, the same thing into our, our premium members. And we also look after the, the relationship with all of our supporters clubs, um, the the disability team um, sits in 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 our department. Um, we look after the catering relationship um, with 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 Delaware North, um, and we have a lot of responsibility for the 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 operation of of, of the stadium as well, and, and work closely with the with the team um, over at the stadium to make sure that the operation runs runs smoothly. So pretty pretty, a pretty broad remit. Yeah, definitely. And and I suppose when it comes to Arsenal women playing at Emirates Stadium, you're kind of front and centre of that operation. Um, talking specifically about Arsenal women playing more games at the Emirates, um, you know, last season there were four, not including the friendly with Chelsea, which was part of the Emirates Cup doubleheader. So five overall, really. Um, from your perspective and your team's perspective, what were you? What were your kind of KPIs um, for those games that you really wanted to see? And was the ambition always to expand that out? You know, coming into this season and future seasons. 
Yeah, I mean, we were, we were careful not to set ourselves sort of specific KPIs in terms of in terms of attendance. What we really wanted to do was um, drive forward the women's game, get get as many people watching um, the Arsenal women's team as as possible, create a fantastic atmosphere for for, for, for the women's team, um, really with a view that that you know we want to be at the forefront of of driving forward the women's game um, in in England. So it was great that we could host host those. Uh, those matches, and one of the things that I'm really passionate about in in our department is that we is that when I talk about season tickets and match by match tickets, I'm not just talking about the men's team. This is this is the men's and the women's team, and so you know we look at both teams holistically and and try to make sure that we're getting as as, as many fans in the, in the building as we possibly can for for, for uh, all of our all of our teams. And when Arsenal women play at Emirates Stadium, what? does that process look like for you kind of front to back both in sense of the marketing and things like that I know for example there are minimum and maximum crowds in terms of the amount of staff you have to have what are the kind of things um, that you have to take into account for Arsenal women that are, that are perhaps a little bit unique compared to your average men's home game yeah it's a really interesting challenge for us because I mean, we, we host 60,000 fans here all the time and, and have done for for a long time um, and so there's a lot of planning that goes into hosting a, a women's game because we're not quite at those attendances yet. Um, and so that means that a, a lot of our operation has to be, has to be different. We have to adapt to that. Um, one of our considerations is, is whether we do or don't get above 10,000 fans as, as an example, because at 10,000, it becomes, um, regarded as a, as a sort of major event that involves road closures. There's, there's more policing involved. Um, and obviously that means that it drives, drives the cost up. So that's, that's, that's a consideration. But I mean, for, for us, it's, you know, we want to make sure that we're getting as, as many fans in the stadium as we possibly can. So we've made sure never to sort of cap our sales to make sure we don't cross a certain threshold or, or anything like that. But it's, um, you know, there's, there's, a, a, there's a lot of thought and, and, and planning that, that goes into it. And, and we're constantly changing and, and evolving that. I think the, the, the first game we had last season, the Chelsea game, there were some challenges operationally um, before kickoff. And so we, you know, we, we made sure that we reviewed that, changed our, our entry procedures. Um, and I think after that, it was, it was much smoother. So you know, we find ourselves kind of learning um, with, each, with each match that, that we have and things get a little bit smoother. Um, but they, they, we end up collaborating across the club. Every department's really involved. Um, us obviously on the on the the uh, the uh, t- on the ticketing side, um, the, the stadium access side, the fan contact side, um, stadium management obviously heavily involved, and then other departments all, all, all across, be it retail, making sure that we can operate um, the kiosks inside and the uh, the armory outside, uh, partnerships obviously because. These games are, are, are hugely important to Emirates, Nadidas, and Visit Rwanda, and, and all of our partners. So, um, yeah, it's, there's there's a lot of work and, and a lot of planning that, that that goes into them. And we obviously collaborate really closely with the football side too, because it has to work. It has to work for them too. And um, and I'll come on to that a bit later. But I guess um, Arsenal women didn't play at Emirates between 2013 and 2019. There were a few games in the early 2010s, particularly at the outset of the WSL. And I think this was very much an FA-led initiative to kind of kind drive attendances a little bit. And so there was a, a six-year gap before the women then played again in the Emirates Cup in 2019. Not, sh- I understand why that took place. Not sure it really worked, though, at the time because so many players had been at the World Cup and obviously the men's and women's pre-seasons don't really line up. But what? how come, first of all, how come, I guess, 
the change in thinking now? And did the pandemic perhaps delay um, this kind of, I, I guess I'll call it a new strategy of playing more often at the Emirates? I'm not sure the pandemic delayed it necessarily. I think what the pandemic did is it gave us a chance to to uh, reset a little bit on some of our our, our priorities, um, uh, and we we, t- we took a view, I'd say, a, a year or so ago, eighteen months ago, that we, we really wanted to bring more of the women's games to to the Emirates. I think that coincided with you know the continued growth of the women's game more more broadly, um, and so it makes sense to us that that we, we have a a main stadium, a fantastic stadium, um, in in the Emirates. Um, and so we wanted to bring more and more games, um, to the Emirates. So, um, I wouldn't say the pandemic necessarily had, had a a huge impact, but I I think, um, it's, you know, it's, it, I guess it it gave us a chance to, to really consider what we wanted to do in, in, in the sort of longer term. And how about, um, how did it work for example, because obviously it creates in a way creates two distinct audiences compared to the people who go to Meadow Park regularly. And obviously one of the aims has to be that when you get a, a, you know, a bigger crowd at the Emirates that some of those then say, "Mm, actually I might go to Meadow Park next week as well. How do you track that? Is there a way of tracking that? Um, do, Do you think there's been an uptick yet or is it too early to tell? I think there's definitely been an uptick. I, I think um, it, it's difficult to track how many from the Emirates are going to Meadow Park, but we do know that almost everybody who attends Meadow Park is attending the Emirates. And all of the games that were in the, the kind of Meadow Park season ticket obviously then then um, counted for, for the games at the Emirates. Um, and it's it's you know it's been fantastic to, to, put, to put the games uh, to put the games there because we've been able to materially increase increase capacity, um, in, increase attendance. I mean we. Uh, we typically average about 1,500 um, at, at Meadow Park. Uh, last season, our biggest crowd there was was uh, was about 3,000 um, for the the Chelsea FA Cup game um, at the Emirates. Every game that we had there last season obviously cleared those those that, uh, cleared those numbers, and a couple of them by by you know factors of, of three or four. So, um, I mean that's that's really what we want to do is and is continue to to build the audiences um, at at the Emirates. But we're aware that you know we need to. Uh, that it's yeah you're absolutely right. What you say it's it's, it's a distinct audience, um, and, so, and so we want to create create an environment where all of our fans want to come and watch games at the Emirates. And one of um, probably one of the biggest shames last year was that that Spurs game, um, which originally was so perfectly teed up. It was a Saturday afternoon during the men's international break, North London derby, which you'd expect to get the biggest attendance. Obviously, ended up getting postponed because of COVID cases in the Spurs camp. Um, moved to a midweek in May, but I mean, at which I think. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I, I gather would have had an impact on the attendance. Do you have an idea of what the attendance for that game might have been like on what was actually a very sunny Saturday <laughs> in March as well, which is quite rare in England, um, and how much that impacted the numbers? Yeah, it was a real shame. Uh, we were desperate for, the, for, for that game to go ahead and obviously completely understand why, why it couldn't. Um, we, we like to think we would have cleared 20,000 for that one, um, which would have been a fantastic atmosphere. We still got 13,500 um, uh, fans in, which uh, was our, our biggest attendance at the Emirates, uh, even bigger than, than Barcelona in, in the Champions League. Um, 
Uh, but a real shame, as you say, because you know we ended up losing, I think, quite a lot of the family audience um, because with it moving to an eight, eight o'clock kickoff midweek, that's one of the fantastic things about you know the the, the atmosphere of um, and and the attendance at the women's games it tends to skew more towards families, um, more towards um, more towards women, more towards girls, the sort of uh, younger audience, which is which is great because they're the you know they're the sort of future of um, of. Uh, of, 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 of our fan base um, and a real shame that I think we lost some of those so um, you know yeah, we ended with 13 and a half we're still really pleased with how that game went and all the other games to be honest um, we know that there's kind of plenty of room for for growth but as, as I say to be to be driving uh, those attendances um, already is, is 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 really encouraging yeah and one of the things um, I think that's quite interesting and particularly next season as well the the kind of distinction between I guess marketing the Champions League games which are obviously midweek um, you know Barcelona kind of sells itself but one of the things I speculated on last year was that Wolfsburg game that perhaps people who aren't who are only casually interested in the women's game perhaps the name Wolfsburg doesn't jump out as much at them because the men's brand isn't really on par with Wolfsburg's women's brand. What are the kind of, when you speak to the marketing team, you know, are there distinct challenges? Like again, Tottenham sells itself, Barcelona sells itself, but looking at some of these, what might potentially be group games next year, you know, there's going to be a group game against the lowest seed in the group you know, what yeah. kind of conversations do you have with marketing about some of those games? Yeah, plenty. We're, we're plugged right into our, our our brand marketing team, and I'd say similar to, to the approach we've taken all across commercial um, brand marketing, have placed a, um, a sort of renewed, um, even greater focus on on on, on Arsenal on, on Arsenal women. We have. Uh, members of the team dedicated to driving the you know the, the Arsenal women game um, the Arsenal women attendances and um, and so we work we, yeah, we we do work, work very closely with them and it's true to a point that your Barcelonas and Spurs and your Spurs sell themselves but I mean our, our ultimate ambition is to sell out the Emirates is to get sixty thousand fans in in the stadium for Arsenal women's games and we're not there yet um, we're not. You know, and there's plenty of of of, uh, of room to uh, to go. So we're working through that right now to look at what our marketing strategy is um, for the for the the um, WSL games, for the Champions League games, um, because we're also aware that it's it, it is a different audience to the audience that attends our our men's games. Um, there is obviously going to be crossover, um, but. It's you know we're aware that we need to attract new audiences, and there may be distinctions, as you say, between those that attend the weekend games and those that attend the, the midweek games. So we work very closely with our marketing guys, and we're, we're you know we're really pleased to have have great support from them. Yeah, and that's another one of the challenges as well. I, I sometimes think in the women's game we're guilty of trying to sell too much to families and young girls, and 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 like obviously that's a core audience and it's really required. But if we're talking about getting to sixty thousand, we need. 25 year old men groups of mates and and really engage that audience as well which i think is is a really really interesting challenge um in this now obviously we've had the fixtures for next season uh which were released um on tuesday i believe which can you um perhaps talk about which of the wsl games arsenal are, are thinking about hosting at the emirates next season 
Yeah, we're working through that that now. I mean, the, some of the fixtures jump out straight away, and and um, you know, obviously, we, we, you know, we're looking at the, the the success we had last year. So the Spurs game on the twenty fifth of, of September. These obviously these dates are subject to change with with broadcast, but on on that weekend, um, that one is obviously you know fr- uh, front of mind for us. Uh, it, it also falls during an international break on on the, the men's side, so that's that's helpful. Um, the United game on the 20th of, of November, I think that falls um, just after the World Cup break. So again, it, 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 it wouldn't compete with um, uh, on, on, on the men's side. Um, Chelsea was really successful last year. Obviously, you know, it's, it, it's a big, it's a, um, uh, it's a, obviously a big game from a London derby perspective, but also from a um, competitive point of view. That's on the same weekend as the men's North London derby where we play away. So that creates a bit of a challenge, but it's something that, w- that we're going to look at. So I'd say hopefully within the next, um, well, we're, we're actually we're, we're launching season tickets next next Tuesday. So um, these are decisions we're making imminently um, and we'll be communicating on, 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 on that soon. And then we've committed to, to, hosting, to hosting six. Hopefully they're going to be the three Champions League group stage games. Um, that obviously depends on on getting through the the round two qualifier. Uh, the, the draw for that is on the second of September, um, and then uh, the two the two um, the, the two legs of that knockout game are, are the end of September. So we'll find out then, kind of what you know what um, what the kind of lie of the land is. But hopefully, we'll um, be smoothly into the Champions League group uh, group stage games, and that, that you know that will that will complete the, the, the sort of six games. But that's not to say that there there may not be more as well. Um, we'll see we'll we'll see how how the season unfolds and how um you know i i think possibly my favorite well almost certainly my favorite day slash game of last season was that chelsea game opening game of the season um you know nice big crowd obviously arsenal won but they won in a way that was you know very nervy and tight and you could sense particularly you know chelsea getting a goal back and arsenal defending for the last 20 minutes just perfect ingredients i think um, for because obviously the thing that ultimately sells all of this is what happens on the pitch, and again one of the things one of the challenges I think in marketing women's football is having once you've got the crowd having them engaged having an atmosphere and the sense that all of this matters, and I, I think the Chelsea game was perfect for that because you could feel that people brought into it and got tense. How, how much of a success was that game in particular? Yeah, hugely successful. Hugely, hugely. I, I think um, I was really interested in in the feedback also from from the football side because you know we, we asked the question: Would you rather play at Meadow Park, where you can be uh, more or less guaranteed of of sellout, or 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 um, there are thereabouts at kind of three four thousand, or would you rather play at the Emirates, where um, we won't be near sellout, but it'll be a um, a, you know, a, a much bigger crowd, and the feedback from the football side is: No, we want, we want to play at the Emirates um, because it feels like home. Um, and I think I think the fans fed off that. I think hopefully the football side fed off that too. And it was a, it was just a fantastic atmosphere. Um, and I mean, we saw attendances thereafter pick up. Um, or there was there was then a fair amount of crossover from people who bought for the Chelsea game who then went on to buy for the Barcelona game and for the Spurs game and ultimately that's what it's that's what it's about it's about building that you know that that interest um, capitalizing on, on an atmosphere like that and it's it can only be a good thing when, when when people come see the team play fantastically score some great goals first football match I brought my two-year-old daughter to um, so she, she enjoyed it um, and uh, yeah hugely successful 
Anna, you referenced the football side there. And, and uh, just as a last question, something I've, I've really detected, I remember those games um, at the Emirates 10, 11 years ago and interviewing players and sensed a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of, well, Meadow Park's our home and actually playing in a 60,000 stadium that's only got 3,000 people in it is is a little less you know, perhaps not as attractive, but I, I detect a real change now in players now who really, really want this. And, you know, we're, we're slap bang in the middle of the Euros and we're seeing, you know, big attendances nearly every game in the tens of thousands. And I really sense an appetite for it with the players, definitely with Jonas as well. I know Jonas, for example, did an open training session at Emirates Stadium because Arsenal had um, Barcelona followed by Chelsea at Wembley. So I, I'm really getting the sense that there's a big increased appetite from from the players and and from the coach. What do the who do you talk to on the football side? Is it Jonas and the players, or is it Claire Wheatley um, that you have these discussions with? Predominantly with with Claire. Um, so I, I talk I talk quite often with with, with Claire and and you know with, there's a lot of collaboration between the football side and and the commercial side. But Claire, as as head of head of women's football, um, is our sort of conduit. Um, but then we, we also have have a direct line into into some of the players as well to make sure that you know that we're kind of getting their you know their their thoughts. Um, so um, and it's it's a relationship that works that works really well. And obviously, you know, we're, we're only ever going to do do things that make sense for the football side because ultimately this is all about you know making the football team as as, as successful as it as it possibly can be. Um, but you're absolutely right. There's 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 a real groundswell of, of support to be to be playing at the Emirates to be to, to make it our, our home, make it feel like a like a fortress and create a fantastic atmosphere, which which we did. So um, yeah, really looking forward to to bringing more and more games there there this season and seeing attendances continue to grow um, and 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 get behind our our fantastic team. Yeah, definitely. And and definitely, I, I think it's always been there from the supporters, the regulars at Meadow Park um, in particular, really, in all the conversations I have, really, really enthused by seeing these games at the Emirates and bringing them to a bigger audience. Tom, I know you've got a meeting with Jen Beattie in a few minutes, and that's yeah. obviously very important. So I'll let you get across to that because obviously Jen is uh, starting to do some work on the marketing, marketing side. But yeah. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and a really, really, really interesting insights there pleasure pleasure thanks a lot great chat okay stick with us for part two where i'll be talking to carrie dunn about her book quite unsuitable for females the history of women's football in england selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage shopify is there to help you grow shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with shopify Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So joining us now on the show, uh, journalist, author, academic extraordinaire, uh, Carrie Dunn. Carrie, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you, Tim. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show um, again. And obviously, we've got you on for a very specific reason this time, because you have just, well, I say just written, certainly just released um, (laughs) a book called Unsuitable for Females, which is obviously, uh, maybe not obviously to everyone, but a direct lift from uh, the FA statement when they banned women's football in 1921, uh, the rise of the lionesses and women's football in England. Um, first of all, can you summarise what the book is about and I guess what you set out to achieve in writing it? Okay, um, that's a very big couple of questions there. Um, okay, so basically the book is telling the history of women's football's progress over the last 100 years or so in a series of pen portraits, so telling individual stories, but also unpacking some of the myths and legends that have risen up around the Uh, deepest histories of women's football because so much of it has been uh, ignored, covered up, uh, treated differently or, you know, just kind of whitewashed a little bit. Um, A lot of the myths and legends, as I call them, of women's football have been kind of held up as kind of really exciting stories and they're kind of treated as gospel. And we really don't know very much about a lot of the early days of women's football still. We've still got a lot to be uncovered. And it's always really difficult uh, doing histories of any kind of women's history, in fact, because women's names change quite often. Sometimes they're not filling in the paperwork um, themselves and husbands or fathers are doing it for them. So it's difficult to keep a track of women um, in the in the dark and distant past. So that was one of my, one of my missions to start to um, uncover some of these stories. And it was kind of a follow-up to my two previous books, um, The Roar of the Lionesses and The Pride of the Lionesses, because people kept saying, would you like to go further back in history? And I was like, I don't really want to write a comprehensive history because there are other people doing you know, great work like that. Obviously, Jean Williams has written about it and Susie Rack has got her book out now. I was thinking, I like talking to people, I like telling people's individual stories and digging really deep into them and then using them to tell the bigger to put the bigger picture together. Um, so that's what I'm doing in Unsuitable for Females. Yeah, that's and I've got um, questions about uh, some of those things you covered there. I, I'd say as well from one of the th- – the only book I've ever been involved in was actually like a, a history book, a history of Arsenal, um, though the men's team, but looking back like to the 1880s, to the very mm-hmm. formation. And what really struck me kind of doing that is the extent to which you kind of grow up with this idea that history like is really reliable. Yeah. <laughs> or, like it's been like – really rubber stamped and and the the amount of apocryphal kind of like you say myths and legends and you know things things i know about arsenal's history for example that loads of people know or think they know that have passed into passed into legend and you look back at it and it's like literally someone said that in the daily mirror in 1922 and it's been accepted ever since. And, Absolutely, you know, yeah. we uncovered stuff that wasn't true <laughs> at all when you actually look at it. And um, I, I guess um, 
you know, it, like you say, it's not a history textbook. It's not intended to be utterly exhausted. Like you say, you've kind of split it into these 12 chapters, which are almost like vignettes, hmm. if you like. W- what was the process like of choosing those 12 particular stories? And was there was, was that agonizing at all? Were there things you had to leave out? Uh, what was that process like of constructing how this book was going to fit together? Yeah, I started with a kind of timeline, but also kind of simultaneously, I was kind of listing the stories that I wanted to find out more about, particularly in the kind of very earliest period. So kind of the Dick Kerr ladies, because um, you know, again, Gail Newsham has written like all the books on the Dick Kerr ladies. We don't need to necessarily dig out more about that because she's doing that great work. But I was interested in the individuals rather than necessarily the football side of it so that was quite an interesting one because who do you pick of these kind of really brilliant footballers in the early days of the 20th century that we don't know very much about there are so many of them I could have picked any of them so that was one thing and then as I move through kind of towards the 60s and the 70s when the women's FA was was first set up and the first clubs were set up Again, who do I pick there? There are women there who have never spoken to the media about their footballing careers. How do I find them? How do I then start telling their stories? Because that's a massive challenge too. These women haven't gone on record before. How do I actually find them and then convince them to talk to me um, about their football? So that was the other major challenge. And then I also had to come up with a cutoff date because I didn't really want to go past the formation of the Women's Super League initially, because after 2011, we start to get pretty decent media coverage. Obviously, it can always be better, but it's pretty good. But then I realized that I would have to tell some of the Women's Super League stories that, again, as you as you say, they've been presented in particular ways and we know kind of the basic facts, but maybe the emotion or the feeling or the personal impacts haven't been told previously. So I have overlapped into the early years of the WSL a little bit because I think it's important to give that little bit of perspective. It's not like the WSL came in and then everything was perfect. There are still challenges which are related to the previous 100 years of women's football. Yeah, absolutely. And when you go into that kind of early WSL period, what what I quite like, I know from your kind of the pride of the lionesses and the roar of the lionesses that you kind of had a bit of a, um, you know, an objective, I guess, not just to talk to like the biggest players that we all know, but, you know, like players in the current women's championship, for example, which is still semi-pro and these women still have jobs and, and things like that and still have a lot of the challenges that we probably associate with a previous time. Certainly when we look at, you know, players who are going to the Euros with England this summer, for example. And and that, that was one of the things I really liked about the way you covered that early WSL period is you covered women who actually, you know, were thinking, hmm, now this has gone professional. Is this the career for me, oh. though? Um, was that was that something quite? Because you speak to a lot of uh, you know a lot of big players who've come through that period, like Anita Asante, for example. But was that quite deliberate to like um, come through with that that some of the doubts actually that professionalism or at least implied professionalism in some cases brought with it? Absolutely. Um, I think professionalism or kind of being full time, I guess, um, is often treated or kind of um, 
acknowledged as this kind of quick fix, I suppose. Um, the, the idea is that if the WSL expands and more teams are professional, then that's great and everything will be fantastic and it's the way forward, which I guess to a degree it is. That is what we that's what we do want. We do want a professional women's Super League. We do want professional footballers feeding into it too. But the challenges are, as you say, when you've got senior players who have got you know, mortgages, relationships, careers, uh, it's not a straightforward decision to kind of p- put everything at risk almost for maybe two or three years of professional football. And to talk to those women who had to make that choice, who were never kind of given the option of being a professional footballer at the age of 16, as presumably a lot of girls are going to have in the future now, we're still in a massive transition period, I think. It's it's easy to look back on 10 years of the Women's Super League and say, look, we've been going for a decade. Everything is going very well. There are still, as you say, challenges that need to be considered. And there have been challenges that are still impacting and will still impact on the next maybe two generations of women's Super League players. Yeah, 100%. I think one of the things we miss as well a lot is, you know, again, you read quite inspirational stories like Beth Mead, like Lucy Bronze, particularly a lot of these these top players from the Northeast who've, you know, driven 50 miles to training twice a week and things like that. But obviously they're the absolute elite players. And the question I often have of myself is, well, what about the players that don't play for England? What about the players who, you know, play in the championship or whatever, which in in men's terms, that's a very decent career to play in the championship or league one, but there isn't that structure in women's football. So I think we're we're often guilty of talking, uh, well, not necessarily you and I, I say like the royal we, as it Mm. were, of talking about uh, this is what you need to become an England international, but what about the player who plays for Charlton um, or Crystal Palace or someone like that? And I think um, that that was the really particularly with the kind of Donny Bell's focus as well, um, you know, a club who who kind of fallen away. But um, I want to come away from the the beginning of the WSL and go more back uh, to the beginning of the book. Um, and obviously, it's, it's kind of chronological the way it's set out. That the most interesting or the most enlightening chapter I found was the one about Emma Clark, right? Um, because I, I'd never heard about this before. Um, obviously, we want people to buy the book, so I'm not going to ask you to give away the entire book, but this chapter I found particularly interesting. Could you just summarize what the chapter was about? Yeah. Um, the Emma Clark chapter is the one that I actually found the most challenging to write. So Emma Clark has been, uh, I'm trying to think of the right verb here, um, declared announced um, to be the first black woman to play professional football. And there is some evidence that has been presented that suggests that. Um, however, there are there is also a school of thought that suggests that the woman that's been identified as Emma Clark is not Emma Clark. There is some suggestion that this woman who has been identified as the first black female professional wasn't actually professional. And there has even been evidence suggested that this woman who has been identified as the first black female to play football wasn't actually black. So it was a very difficult story to investigate sensitively, particularly um, when you're dealing with obviously family history here. Again, as I say, it's difficult to get hold of a lot of documentation, but there are some very knowledgeable people on both sides of this uh, of this piece of research. So giving the kind of balance between the two or two or three or four perspectives uh, on 
who will, the lady will call Emma Clark, um, has been absolutely fascinating and, as I say, a real challenge to research and tell the story sensitively. Yeah, and that's the other thing that really struck me about the chapter was, like you say, it's kind of announced um, that Emma Clark was the, was the first black female professional footballer. And, you know, there's, I believe, like a plaque and, you know, a, a bit of a, I don't want to call it shindig, but like an unveiling and mm. things like that. And again, you know, like I said at the top, the, the thing is sometimes in history, we, we look for these quite tidy uh, yeah. explanations so we can box things off and say that's kind of done but the, the reality is it's, it's actually quite messy um, and there are different accounts of things and and I guess um, my other question would be and, and the other thing I, I I would imagine you had to handle sensitively is obviously at this kind of unveiling and this announcement there's a lot of contemporaries of yours um, you know in, involved in that and, uh, and I guess the, the thing that leapt out at me, I think, as well, a little bit was the desire perhaps we have in women's football to really kind of, um, you know, to, to again, to like provide the kind of the simple explanation that, you know, the heroine and all of this. But actually, like you've set out, the, the actual kind of truth of it is, is it, it all is still a bit a bit misty um, what actually happened. And, and do you think that that's a trait just of, of, of our kind of treatment of history in general? Or do you think there's something in women's football that really makes us want to, you know, um, I think completely understandably, but, you know, put up plaques and make these kind of affirmations? Yeah, I think I think both uh, I think both are true to an extent. I think we as humans like to have quite neat stories so we understand the past. But I think, particularly in women's football, um, we know that there is a lengthy history that hasn't been talked about very much. So obviously, we want to find the first you know, X Y Z so that we can put up plaques and say, "Look, we have this long history. This is what happened." But yeah, I, th I mean, the conclusion I draw um, telling Emma Clark's story is, you know, there are plenty of people, as I say, who have done more work on this than me, and I talk to them in the chapter. But ultimately, maybe it doesn't really matter that we're not quite sure how much of the Emma Clark story that we've got is actually the true Emma Clark story, because we do know that there were women playing football at this time. We know that there were black women playing football in this time. So this Emma Clark, I'm saying in inverted commas, this Emma Clark figure um, comes to stand for all of these women who haven't had their stories told and who should get this recognition. So ultimately, I come to the conclusion, perhaps, um, I don't know, perhaps maybe naively, that it, it doesn't matter this, about this person so much as the broader generation who are getting recognition for what they achieved at that time. Yeah, that's that's a really good way of putting it. Actually, um, you know, mi mi I, I say this as a literature grad, but like myths, legends, they do have value actually in 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 the way that we we understand our society and and things like that. Um, now, another obviously a chapter that I took a lot of interest in, and I think a lot of our listeners were taken in interest in. Clearly, there had to be a chapter about Arsenal ladies, uh, given our immense and continuing contribution to women's football over the last 30 years or so. Um, and, you know, you, you speak to 
you know, Vic Akers, Faye White, Anita Asante. But again, what, what actually struck me about this chapter was that you spoke to Yvonne Tracy as well, who even some of our listeners might not remember, might not be so familiar with, but kind of, um, you know, a bit of a rotation player in that, that really, really successful um, Arsenal team of the kind of early 2000s. Again, was picking Yvonne and, you know, Yvonne's story, even in that brilliant Arsenal team, um, was was one of, of struggle, um, really, and struggle for recognition and struggle to make a living and things like that. Again, was was that a conscious decision to tell the story of someone like Yvonne as well as these, you know, people we recognise as, as big stars like Anita and Faye White? Yeah, it, it really was because... Obviously, of that of that great Arsenal side, we we know a lot about a lot of these players, and see Faye and and Neitz are still you know in the media. They're talking now about their careers still, whereas Yvonne um, has obviously faded away from the limelight a little bit. And as you say, she wasn't necessarily in the starting eleven. She was a rotation player. She was a, she came on as sub. She fitted in um, as a utility player, um, and so yes, and then. As I talked to her and the, the first time I gave her a call, the more interested I got in her story because it's, I guess, in a lot of ways, it's, it's the archetypal women's footballer story of, of that time. It's trying to make a living. It's dealing with injuries when you've got to go to work the next day. It's trying to find the time to train. It's moving away from home and your family and your support network um, just for the sake of trying to make a go of it as a professional footballer. So I wanted to kind of give a nod to that kind of story as well as the success and the glory of, of that Arsenal team. Yeah, and of course, and there's there's like a nice anecdote from Yvonne there as well, where her, you know, the island manager kind of says, you know, you need to be playing every week, and she kind of makes, I think, a really reasonable argument that, well, actually, training at Arsenal. Um, at, you know, the stage that, that the game was at at that point is probably more intense and better for me uh, than going to play for, you know, playing every week for, for another team in the top flight and losing 8-0 to Arsenal. Um, yeah, but yeah. The, just that, that sense of even someone on that successful a team of just struggle and grievance and, and effectively, eventually, she packed it in. Yeah, um, she she was quite... She was quite introspective I guess she had because I think because she stepped away from playing football and she had that kind of distance and she was just talking about the decisions that she'd made and she, I didn't get the sense that she, she she regretted anything that she'd done in her footballing career obviously a great player and she was talking about um you know what she might want to do next having realized that you know football is her life but what else could she do as well what 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 might be the next steps for her because she she still works at the club and she loves it and she loves being around the the uh, the, the world of football but this kind this kind of kind of hint you know i've always i've always played football i've always um been around a football club um but i have nothing else apart from that so what if it all ended tomorrow what else might there be so i thought that was kind of a really interesting perspective on it all as well because i think i again i think it's a common thing of female footballers of that generation because nobody expected to be a professional female footballer. No one expected to be a media pundit or you know, a co-commentator or you know, a, you know, any kind of broadcaster like Alex Scott is now. So 
all the different options that they, people have now weren't necessarily open to the even the very best female footballers even you know 15 years ago so i think Yvonne's story is kind of not not a cautionary tale but it's important to remember that even quite recently these challenges were still being presented to our very best female players yeah exactly and in a more modern context you know someone like Yvonne Tracy not I, I, I guess a parallel with I don't know someone like Emma Mitchell you're not getting a game at Arsenal you go to Reading everything's fine um, kind of thing you know whereas the drop-off from leaving Arsenal in you know in the early 2000s there was just no one else around like that really absolutely um, and also if you remember that um, obviously they weren't full-time pros so if she had moved away from Arsenal she would have, she you know, had to find somewhere to live she'd have had to find another job she'd have had to find an entirely new support network away from home so it was a much more difficult thing whereas obviously if it happened now there would be you know housing arranged for her she'd have you know the, the training schedule done for her and everything as well so it's it's a very different uh, very different era now yeah absolutely and and that's um you know one of the things i really like about this the book is just all the way through just full of these stories of women who you know played the game and paid to do so i mean obviously in the earlier history like absolutely prevented from playing but then like post ban there's the kind of where you kind of have to pay to play and and it's a real struggle just to be able to play football at all and and you know the the thought of professionalism i mean the opportunity not really there but like not all of these stories are just from eras that people would expect like the 60s 70s 80s but you know you've got like we said donnie bells and the Notts county story which mm. you know reading that back like i remember all of that breaking and, and I don't know if, if I just allowed it to wash over me a little bit. And I've spoken like you did to Louise Quinn about it a few times. But when you actually read it again in black and white and think, oh, this was like five years ago yeah. that we had like a, a fully fledged WSL club just fold overnight like that. And it's full of these stories. Is, is there a story um, in there or a person that you spoke to that affected you the most or surprised you the most? Um. I feel that's a difficult one to, to to answer because all of the people I spoke to were kind of incredible and inspirational in in, in different ways. But I guess with the Notts County story, um, yeah, you're right. It's odd to think that it happened so recently. You kind of, but I think because it happened on the eve of a season, we kind of you know got got the football underway and people forgot about it. But talking to these women about what was an intense personal immediate impact and it's still quite fresh in their memories as well and um, that really affected me just kind of thinking about how that would have been to think right you haven't got a job you haven't actually got a house after the end of this month or whatever it was I, th I think it's one of it's one of the things that I think we need to really bear in mind I think I think you're right I, have, I think we have as a group of women's football fans, I think we, we've too easily forgotten that this happened so recently that, you know, livelihoods are still at risk and it's still relatively precarious foundations after after 10 years of um, elite female football in, in England. Yeah, of course. And, and obviously, as a result, you lose people as well. Like, you know, you spoke to Rick Passmore, who, you know, had had a really, really solid managerial career in, in the top flight in women's football. And he kind of says, I'd never go back to it. Um, kind of thing just that and you spoke to a lot of people like that didn't you who were just disillusioned and dropped out yeah it, 
I think that there was some disillusionment there. And then you know, there was someone like Chelsea Weston, who was at Notts County at the time. And she was obviously livid at the time. And she, she was still angry about, about the way they'd been treated. I mean, to talk to a range of people from that squad, from that setup, and to get their, you know, everyone kind of agrees on the fact, but the emotional responses were, were were very different, and yeah, talking to Rick Passmore was actually fascinating. Um, he actually said to me at the end, "If you do see me back on a WSL touchline, I promise I'll try to be quieter." <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, yes, yeah, okay, Rick, fair enough." I didn't know what else to say to that because yeah, he's he, he was a, no- a noisy one, wasn't he? But, yeah, yeah, I always really liked the fact that his name was Passmore as well, and those familiar with the football his teams played. <laughs> Um, and, and I say this as someone who, like, you know, I, I'm I'm not snobby about styles of football, but it, it's not an apt name for, for the football <laughs> his team's played. But having said that, I mean, it, it isn't always the way. Having talked to him for quite quite a, a lengthy stretch of time for the book, he's a really thoughtful, very interesting uh, guy, particularly on the workings of the way that football operates and the way that he dealt with being treated not particularly well by some people, and also the way that he dealt with another job offer, and he decided not to take it because he'd already done a gentleman's agreement to take another job. So that's quite interesting. The way that um, the way that honour still governs parts of football, which is always nice to be reminded of. I think sometimes we get a little bit too cynical. Yeah, hundred percent, and and that's what um, again, like Rick, just a, a name I was so familiar with, and, and almost allowed myself to forget about. But that's just what strikes me as such a shame with a lot of the people you spoke to. Not you know, not just re- fairly recent people like Rick, but people from um, you know these these great women from from the past who are still around. Um, but you know, I was I'd listening, to, uh, sorry, reading what the things that Rick said, like you said, structurally and things like that, and just thinking, what a shame that women's football has lost, um, you know, someone like this, not maybe not even as a coach, but um, it, it strikes me as like a bit of a gap, not just from a historical perspective, but from a technical perspective, not to have this expertise anymore. No, absolutely. I think that there's a wealth of knowledge, um, as you say, from, you know, from, from Rick backwards uh, as far as the 1960s still, because we have those generations of female players whose experiences and knowledge can still be drawn on, um, that who could feed into the way that football operates now. Um, I know that the FA have been working to include some of the um, previous lionesses in you know, international camps, and I know that they've had uh, some of the lost lionesses up at St George's Park. And there's been there's been recognition in kind of more recent years about these great teams of the past. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There there are coaches still out there who have been lost to the women's game for various reasons. I mean, even if you're not going to try and integrate them into the way things are running now, their knowledge on why they left would surely be useful. You know, when you leave a job, you get an exit interview. That kind of thing surely needs to be worked into the way that women's football operates now. Yeah, definitely. If you look at um, the reasons why Ada Hegerberg, for example, um, kind of came back into the Norway fold, she cites, um, I've forgotten her name, Lisa Claverson. I've probably butchered the pronunciation apologies to our Norwegian listeners I, I know we have many um, but you know she she cited Lisa Clavson as this this really important figure because she'd played mm. in the early 2000s for Norway and she was the one who made the approach to Ada Hegerberg and kind of said look 
I know it was crap then too because I was your teammate and she's the one who extended that olive branch. And yeah, it, it just strikes me as a pity to lose these type of people. I, I was happy to see Jill Courtard on uh, Sky Sports um, mm. yesterday as well, talking ahead of the Euros. So that's, you know, that that's again um, belated, but, uh, but welcome. Um, how difficult, well, you referenced it a little bit earlier, but just how difficult was it to get in contact with some of these players from bygone eras who just disappeared from the scene? Like, what kind of lengths did you have to go to to talk to some of these women? Um, a lot of it was once I'd made one contact, um, it was actually quite helpful that they would then introduce me to others. So I was fortunate that I'd made contact with Pat Gregory, who's one of the founding members of the Women's FA who was in touch with lots of the first England team. And so she managed to loop me in with several of those. And I was particularly pleased to be able to speak to Wendy Owen, who actually wrote, um, as far as I can work out, it was the first uh, biography or autobiography, sorry, of a female footballer in England. Um, I used it during my master's dissertation. So it was awesome to be able to talk to her um, about her footballing career and also her writing. So that was great. Um, and then kind of further back, um, some of the early England teams, obviously they were also inspired by older women at their club's level uh, in the kind of mid-60s. And so I spoke to some women who played for the Manchester Corinthians in the 50s and 60s, and that was incredible. And that was just so awesome to be able to do. And I guess I should also add here, I was doing all this during the pandemic. So I was, it was all Zoom calls and phone calls. And um, when I was writing most of it, I was living in London and some of the lost lionesses lived not far from my parents. And I was so desperate to be able to go to see them and actually see their memorabilia they were talking about rather than doing over a WhatsApp voice call or whatever. But um, now we've moved and uh, we're in, in the sticks and it's going to be a bit of a more difficult journey. But hopefully I'll still be able to meet up with these people and you know see all this memorabilia, see these jerseys, see the photo albums that they've been talking about for, for real in person. Yeah, and I, I, I'm not going to ask you a question about this, actually, because, like I say, we want people to buy the book, so we don't want to just do like a rereading of it here. But talking about some of the, you know, the lost history, the lost uh, IQ, I guess, there's a, there's a really fascinating chapter about Lowestoft Town, who are, mm. you know, absolutely dominant in women's football in the early 80s, win the FA Cup and then fold a couple of months later. Um, and again, you know, a, a really understandable sense of, of bitterness um, and recrimination from the people involved in that. That's, a, that's another chapter. I don't know if I want to call it a highlight, but um, <laughs> that, I, that I found really, really interesting. Um, one of the things that really struck me, particularly towards the end of the book, when you kind of ask a lot of those players from bygone eras to reflect on what things are like now, um, and you, you talk to a lot, and, and, and I think... <laughs> I don't know if I want to use the term disappointing because it's, you know, it's people's um, personal experience and you, and you can't deny or contest that. But quite a few of them seemed fairly weary, I guess, and cynical about what the women's game is, certainly at the top level at the moment, the WSL. Um, like quite a few kind of said, oh, that they don't really like, you know, the money that's being earned, the fame, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I, I, I guess I found that a little bit, yeah, maybe disappointing just from my own um kind of aspect what did, did you get that sense at all did, did that surprise you at all no i know what you mean um i have to say i wasn't surprised necessarily having spoken to 
you know, several of the players from previous generations before. Um, I think I think that people kind of end up with almost like split loyalties. They're, they're, they're glad to have seen the women's game progress the way it is, and they're glad that women have the chance to be professional footballers and get paid for it, etc. I think everyone accepts that as a common good. I think um, players from previous generations just value the experience that they had when they were playing and the camaraderie. And I guess this is just an entirely different mindset. When you're playing for the love of it and it's not your job, it's just, you know, I, I, I guess there must be just a different mindset about it. And I can understand where, the, where they're saying it doesn't feel the same. It's not the same atmosphere. The players don't have the same kind of vibes around them as they did in their day because, of course, it's going to be different. If you're turning up for training every day and it's your job and then you're playing a match because it's your job, you know, it's, it's bound to be different than you know, going to work five days a week, training maybe on a Thursday night and then going to a game on a coach with all your friends on a Sunday. You know, it's, it's, it's bound to be different. It's an entirely different world. So, yeah, I, I, I do understand their, their perspective on it. And I guess I, I always made a point of saying, you know, how do you, would you like to play now? You know, w- would you have wished to have been able to have the same opportunities? And so many of them said no. They, they were like, no, I'm glad I played when I did. You know, I'm glad I had the experiences that I did because I think it was really valuable. So, yeah, it, it's very interesting. It's just, it just shows you how much women's football has changed at the top level in such a short space of time. Yeah, it really reminded me again when, you know, we wrote a book about Woolwich Arsenal of, of, you know, men's football had a similar split when it was going from amateur to professional. Um, and that that's a big, big split in about the 1890s, 1900s in men's football. And again, that gives you an indication of how far ahead men's football is in terms of the resource and effort behind it that um, this this conversation in men's football is over 100 years old, whereas in women's football, it's probably less than 20 years old. That kind of transition from amateurism to professionalism, which is still happening because there's only 12 clubs in the WSL that are, that are professional and some more professional than others. And um, yeah, it, it really reminded me of, of that kind of um, that juncture in, a, in men's football, when you see loads of clubs just disappear, uh, just drop mm. off the map in the kind of early 1900s. Um, my kind of final question, I guess, you know, the, there's so many different stories in these chapters. And, you know, we haven't talked about like Nettie Honeyball, for example, mm-hmm. um, and Donnie Bells and Julie Chipchase and, and obviously Lowestoft Town as well um, and their story. W- did you have like a favourite chapter to write? Oh, that's so difficult. I mean, the way that I did the interviews, I did all the interviews and then tried to structure them into the book. So it's difficult to kind of say that. But I have to say, I did love um, being able to tell some of Judy Chipchase's story and kind of pay tribute to her because it was not long after she passed away and to be able to talk to her friends and colleagues um, meant a lot. But I guess in a similar vein, returning to the story of Sylvia Gore, who I talked to for um, the Roar of the Lionesses. Um, She passed away a few years ago, and I was very honoured to be able to write her obituary for The Guardian. But also, uh, I spoke to her next of kin uh, shortly afterwards, and 
they asked me whether I could help them find a good home for all her memorabilia, all her trophies, all her medals, all her newspaper cuttings. They were all in her house. So um, I was still working in, in universities at the time. So there is a university in Manchester that has a Sylvia Gore archive of football history. So be able to talk to her cousins about Sylvia's life and their memories of her footballing career um, because they were there for so much of it. They were at Buckingham Palace with her to, to get her get her awards. So be able to do that and just kind of give a bit more perspective on Sylvia's life, even though she's not here to tell it herself, um, was really important to me. Absolutely incredible, and yeah, the 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 uh, the chapters that deal with Sylvia and Julie Chipchase, the former Donny Bells and and sometime Leeds United manager as well. Again, when they were kind of at the forefront um, of women's football, really, really, really touching to hear about what they were like, not just as coaches but as as people, mm-hmm. um, and the impacts they made through their kind of their people skills as much as anything. Um, which is obviously a really important facet of, of management, but just great to shine a line on, shine a light rather on what great people they were. Um, Carrie, the, the book's brilliant. Um, I really, really recommend people buy it. Where can people buy it? You can buy it at all good bookshops um, and it's available online as well, uh, published by Arena Sport. Well, best of luck with the book. Um, I, I know I really, really enjoyed it. I'm sure our listeners will really, really enjoy it as well um, because it's a story that's that's not told enough. Um, and, and it's great to have people, uh, you know, really making the effort to, to kind of tell these stories um, and really link up some of this this history that frankly has just been missing for far too long. Carrie, thanks very much. And we look forward to having you on the show again, maybe the next time you write a book. (laughs) Maybe. Thanks very much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 